Welcome to the Doctority Canada Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Sheshav and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institutions. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today I am very excited to have two guests here to talk about the plastic surgery program at the University of Western Ontario. First, we have Dr. Katie Garland, who is a third-year plastic surgery resident at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. Katie grew up in Ottawa and went on to complete her undergrad at McGill University. She then completed her medical school training from the University of Ottawa. Her academic interests include craniofacial and pediatric plastic surgery. Next, we have Dr. Jesse Hackett, who is a fourth-year plastic surgery resident at Western. Jesse grew up in Chatham, Ontario, and completed his undergrad in biochemistry and immunology and medical school at Western. His interests include breast reconstructive surgery. Katie and Jesse, thank you so much for being here with me today and welcome to the podcast. Our pleasure. Thanks, Shisha, for the introduction. So I'd love to get started with a big picture overview of what it's like to train at your program. Sure. So, I mean, as with all plastic surgery programs, uh, it's a five-year program. Historically, our uh, first year has been uh, somewhat analogous to an internship year, uh, whereby the, the majority of it is spent off service. That has changed somewhat, particularly with the transition to competency by design. So um, there is a couple more months spent on service currently, and that may change moving forward even more. But still, the vast majority of it is spent rotating through other similar services. And that does continue on for the first couple months of the second year as well, uh, before we essentially come back to our home service uh, and stay on plastics and reconstructive surgery uh, for the duration of our residency. So uh, we have roughly three and a half years, perhaps a little bit longer, spent on service. So once you're, once you've joined the team, you spend about a year as a junior resident, and then the transition uh, to becoming a senior resident with more responsibilities, whether that be in running a site or taking senior call happens at the transition of second to third year. And then after that, again, it's, it's just graduated experience. So as a third year, you're, you'll be responsible for the majority of the call in addition to helping coordinate inpatients at each site. And then as you progress further through the years, you get more operating experience running the the team and coordinating medical students and residents beneath you. That's kind of a 10,000 feet overview of how the program is run. And how many residents do you guys take per year? So usually we take two. Um... And then this past year, we also uh, took an IMG. So in our current PGY1 cohort, we do have three residents. So on average, two, sometimes three. So a total of uh, 10 or 11 residents, depending on the year. And you mentioned this briefly, Jesse, but how much plastics experience is available for students in the first two years in the new CBD curriculum? So your first month is on service, and that'll continue to be the case. The majority of that time, however, is taken up by the Surgical Foundation's boot camp, which is mandatory across the country. And that was the only time that I really spent on service uh, when I was a PGY1. There are months now later in the year 
currently. Things, to be honest, may change a little bit still. However, the incoming cohort is the CBD cohort for plastic surgery, not just surgical foundations, but the entirety of their uh, residency training. So I, I think the shift has been across the board to have more time on service. So it'll be a bit more than I experienced, but it's still mostly um, rotating through other other services in first year. And on that point, what's the experience like on these non-plastic services? Yeah, I can speak to that. I did it slightly more recently than Jesse. I think overall the experience is good. You get um, you get to do now in your first year, you, you do an ENT rotation, which you get to operate a lot because our head and neck uh, group here is quite busy. You do an emergency rotation, which is always good as well. You do a consult medicine rotation, which is good for learning how to prepare patients preoperatively in terms of changes in their medications and things like that. Then other rotations, you get to pick and choose a few. So options include a derm path or OMFS, so oral maxillofacial surgery, a research block, which is uh, always popular. And Jesse, were there other ones you guys did? I think you did anesthesia as well. Correct. Yeah. Anesthesia is an option. There used to be an oculoplastics uh, rotation that was available to us because of some logistical issues and some retirements and staff that hasn't been available more recently, but I think we're trying to to get that back as a, a potential option since it was fairly popular. But I think uh, Katie touched on the majority of, of the options. I guess the experience depends on which rotation it is. So it's a mix of medical and surgical off-service rotation. So obviously those will have a bit of a different feel between them, but most of the services are used to having other surgical residents from uh, other services on them and plastic specifically, since it's it's a core mandatory rotation for each of our PGY ones. So I think they have a general feel as to what a plastics PGY one is comfortable with and the expectations of those residents. So I, I would say you are given the opportunity to demonstrate skill and perform sort of as a resident versus a medical student who's just jumping around from service to service. But as with anything, it's kind of what you make make of it. And if you demonstrate that you're interested and willing to participate as a team, as I hope every junior resident would, then then I found my rotations to be rewarding and, and not just sort of performing scut and being a, a warm body. Yeah, I guess the other thing I forgot to mention as well and should add is that in our first year now they do uh, the trauma rotation, which is a good one for a month, as well as two months of uh, what we call CCTC, which is a surgical ICU in London. And both those rotations, you get a lot of independence, which is nice. So from a CBD perspective, putting in chest tubes, putting in central lines, uh, you get a lot of practice with those and that helps with your CBD, what you need to get your CBD for surgical foundations. And it also just helps. I found CCTC overnight. You're, it's yourself and another resident and then there is a fellow, but you get a lot of opportunity to do things. So I found that talking to other residents, our comfort level with things like IJs and arterial lines and things like that is fairly high because we get to do a large number of them as well. So I think that from that perspective, those rotations are, are also great for surgical skills development. 
And could you tell me a little bit more about the different sites that you rotate through? I'll talk about Vic. That is my that has been my home for a while. So Victoria Hospital is our big uh, trauma center here in London. Uh, in terms of what we see on a daily basis there, you get all the traumas. So craniofacial trauma, hand trauma. And then in addition, you're also, we have a lower extremity specialist there. We have a um, breast reconstructive surgeon there. We have a pediatric craniofacial surgeon there. We have a pediatric uh, hand surgeon there. And then we have a second craniofacial surgeon that also does uh, a significant practice with uh, anesthetic practice as well. So you get a lot of variability in, in the Victoria Hospital rotation, which is really nice. And you get... There's ORs running every day, you have clinics, which are mostly trauma clinics, and then or burn clinics, and then in addition you also have about, I'd say probably four of the five days you have a minor procedure clinic, which is mostly either minor traumas, sometimes we're doing K-wires and things like that in clinic, or you're doing like uh, skin excisions for BCCs and SECs and melanomas. So that's another side that kind of all of the staff touch on. Um, so from a breadth perspective, Vic is probably our most broad rotation, so you're kind of doing something different every day, which makes it very uh, interesting and exciting, and that's where a lot of the trauma comes in as well, so you have a lot of different experiences, which is quite lovely, but it's also busy, of course. Yeah, that was that was a great summary. As Katie pointed out, it, it is a level one trauma center, so you have virtually every surgical service available, and that that leads to a lot of collaboration with neurosurgery, vascular surgery, thoracics even. And then, as Katie pointed out as well, it is a, a children's hospital. So we get exposure to cleft lip and palate, craniosynostosis, complex pediatric hand. There's a NICU, so we do see some some small babies with congenital deformities. But yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's definitely a busy site. We see a lot, um, and there's a, a very large breadth there. The other sites are a little bit more specialized in a sense. So St. Joseph's Hospital uh, is where we have the Hand and Upper Limb Center. It's, a, I think, a pretty well-known subspecialized uh, aspect of our, our program. I think a lot of people outside of London uh, view our program as a quote-unquote hand program because of the reputation of, of the Hulk. So with that, we do a whole lot of hand trauma covering a very large catchment area, 1.5 million people roughly. So we see quite a bit. So we do a lot of replantation there, uh, just general revascularization, soft tissue trauma. So that's everything from local flaps up to free flap surgery for the upper extremity primarily. We also have a peripheral nerve clinic that's associated with that. So we see people from pretty much all over, occasionally from other parts of the province or even other provinces. And we do a whole lot of nerve surgery, so brachial plexus exploration, brachial plexus nerve transfers. We had some last week. We have some more this week. But that's really the major focus of, of St. Joseph's Hospital is upper extremity hand surgery. There is... Um, a small amount of cosmetic surgery that happens there as well, but that's really the main the main flavor of St. Joe's. And then a university hospital, our third site within London, uh, we have two primarily breast-trained surgeons, so that's the majority of what happens there, although there's a lot of wound um, 
referrals as well, in addition to uh, melanoma, is probably the vast majority of, of those patients are seen at University Hospital. There's also collaborations with cardiovascular surgery there quite often because that's their primary hospital that they do a lot of their elective work at. Neurosurgery has most of their elective work at, at a university as well. So we do a lot of uh, scalp and head and neck reconstruction that's primarily focused on like cranial reconstruction as opposed to mid-face and, and mandible. So I would say that's kind of the overview of, of our three sites within the city. As I alluded to, we do cover the surrounding communities. Um, so we'll often get referrals coming in from smaller centers. But yeah, it's just the, the three sites within London. And uh, you alluded to this earlier, but could you tell me a little bit more about the fellows at your program? Yeah, we really only have fellows at the Hand and Upper Limb Center. So it's a combination of uh, plastic surgery fellows as well as uh, orthopedic surgery fellows. Uh, it kind of just depends on the year. Sometimes there's a few of both. Sometimes there's more ortho than plastics or the other way around. But on the other sites, uh, when we work with general surgery and do the breast reconstruction, there's oftentimes a uh, like a breast oncology fellow, but they are mostly just involved from the general surgery mastectomy side. So we get to do all the operating from the reconstructive side. And then at uh, Joe's, where the hand and upper limb fellows are, I think there's five per year. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jesse. But there's about five per year, and I think it's very well balanced at Joe's. They're quite good about the staff are quite good about representing the residents' interests and the what the the residents should be doing. And I think the expectation of the fellows is really to teach the residents. And so they, I think, on a whole, we're pretty lucky with how much we still get to do at Joe's despite having fellows. But um, Jesse, I haven't done my Joe's rotation this year, so maybe you can speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So currently there are five hand and upper limb fellows at St. Joseph's. I think they'll take up to seven, but it depends on the year um, and the applicant. It's I think it's almost always been majority orthopedics. In addition to being well known for hand, there's some pretty big names in London for both shoulder and elbow. So some of those fellows come here with the express uh, intent of of focusing on shoulder or elbow. So not all the fellows are, are interested in distal wrist and hand, which means you're not competing for cases with a whole lot of bodies. But even the uh, plastics fellow this year, I worked with him uh, quite a bit, uh, as well as the orthopedic fellows that were interested in hand. And I'd say it's, it's very collegial. I was certainly the first person in line for operating uh, throughout the several months I've spent there. Some of the more complex cases uh, that I mentioned earlier uh, will be fellow or staff-led, but I would say the vast majority of the time, the resident, uh, the senior resident, is the one operating. And it's it's been quite collegial in my experience with, with fellows allowing you to be the one to take the lead. So they are occasionally operating, but especially in compared to some other uh, locales that I've seen, I'd say the residents definitely take priority in the in the operating order. And so I'm going to switch gears a bit. Could you tell me a little bit about the research opportunities? Yeah. Uh, so in terms of the research opportunities, the expectation at Western is that every year 
residents have a presentation, a research presentation to give for research day. That usually happens in May or June, so you have kind of your whole year to put that together. So you're expected to have one per year. In terms of availability of preceptors, everyone's very open to taking um, to taking on residents. Uh, we have a kind of like a more of a bench work lab that looks at more kind of um, breast type of breast type of things that's at Victoria Hospital and then the Hulk lab is quite a quite a well-known lab um, they do a lot of kind of anatomic uh, studies and so they're also a very high kind of profile high publishing lab but in addition I think essentially all of the staff have research interests and they have quite high research expectations from a staff level so there's always lots of projects to go around and everyone's willing to collaborate with the residents and uh, mentor them and then in addition in our second year we have the opportunity to do the masters of surgery program which is a one-year master's program where we are given five months of research time in our second year to help complete our project and then you're expected to work on it outside of work hours as well and so this doesn't add time to your residency but uh, you get a master's out of it. It's a a very popular program at Western. I've done it, I found it quite good. Uh, My co-resident has done it as well. And so I think overall, that's a very well-liked program. It's great for kind of getting your feet wet in terms of getting more into research. You get a lot of class time to learn about statistics and different methods and models with research. So there is like a classroom component as well as just your research project. And then you have a your, your usual thesis defense as well. So that's very well supported by the program, like our residency program. And uh, it's very encouraged. It's not mandatory by any means. Not all of our residents do it, but it's encouraged. And I think in terms of other research opportunities, we also have had a resident that has done an MBA. We've done, we have a resident that's doing um, the public health program through Harvard. So I think that there's other types of research that are also very well supported as well. Uh, So there's lots of different opportunities. And what kind of support is available for presenting research? So currently there, each resident is funded up to $4,500 over the course of the residency to be able to travel or cover costs of, of presenting any sort of research. Simply just submit your, your costs to the program and then they'll cover it up to that, that maximum. I think most residents have difficulty kind of bumping up against that. So I would say the program is very interested in having you present any sort of research. So uh, from that perspective, I don't think any of the residents have felt that they didn't have financial um, and both moral support to to take time off and and to have costs covered to be able to do that. And are there any limits on the support that you have for research? Any limitations? No, I not that I that really comes to my mind. They're very supportive of collaboration with other specialties. So like I'm personally in a project right now that's with a plastic surgeon and a radiologist. I know there's a lot of work with ortho um, at the Hand and Upper Limb Center, and that extends across multiple resin projects. I think it's very, very collaborative. So not, there's no restrictions that I'm I'm aware of. I think they prefer that you do have a plastic surgery staff involved in any research project, just to help guide you from from the plastics perspective to make it sort of relevant to your to your specialty. But there's no restrictions as as far as I know. 
and I and like Katie mentioned before, the Masters of Surgery program is is very popular. It's pretty much a requirement uh, across the board, at least that I'm aware of. If you're going to pursue an academic career or at least leave that option open, you do need a Masters of of some form. So I think that's that's partially why it's become such a popular option for our residents. So now I'm going to switch gears a bit and ask, what's call like? Yeah, kind of depends. I feel like you have good days, you have bad days. Our call is a little bit unique because the way that the hand and upper limb center works is uh, we alternate being on call with orthopedic surgery. So any calls from the peripheral hospitals, which like Jesse said, is a a catchment area of about 1.5 million. So essentially kind of southwest of Hamilton all the way down to the end of Ontario is essentially ours like up into Tobermory and Sudbury, Owen Sound, those areas as well. So we have a pretty big catchment area. So any hand call that comes in, either ortho or plastics takes it depending on the day. And then for other things, we like other plastic surgery things like burns, craniofacial issues, and things like that, and um, necrotizing infections, we will get uh, get the calls. And sometimes it can be really busy, especially when you're covering hand call um, with such a big population into farming and kind of um, industry and things like that. You get a lot of hand injuries. Sometimes it's uh, not quite as busy, especially during COVID. I think that that has changed the call volumes a little bit. I think all the residents would agree it's changed it for the better. <laughs> but overall, I think even even despite that, our, our call is usually fairly busy, but um, we get a lot of independence, which is really nice. And that's kind of call is where you can learn to develop a lot of your different skills and kind of get a little bit more time working on your own. So that's, I think, actually something, even though it's quite busy, it's something that re- the residents really appreciate. So, yeah, that, that was great. I think uh, sort of implied in there is that we're a home call service. So we're not in hospital at any of the sites, or at least we're not, we're not mandated to be. So we're, we cover all three hospitals uh, at any given time when you're on call at, uh, in the evenings. And then like Katie alluded to, we cover the surrounding hospitals. With regards to hand call, it, it definitely is or can be busy like Katie alluded to. Um, and so to address that, the staff has opened up this new urgent clinic that runs daily at St. Joseph's Hospital. So that'll cover things that are of an urgent nature that we're seeing overnight within the last couple of days. Uh, and they get referred to our clinic. And I think that's been a big game changer with regards to resin fatigue and doing procedures in the eMERGE overnight. So we're doing these instead in our minor procedure suite, which gives you a bit better of a physical atmosphere, overhead lighting, cautery, that sort of thing to be able to do some of those more difficult procedures. But but I'd agree with Katie that it's it can be hit or miss. We don't convert all of our call, so sometimes you won't be called in in the middle of the night, but uh, but occasionally it can be busy. And what is the support in terms of allied primary health practitioner? Yeah, we don't actually have one um, at any of the sites. Uh, so it's usually just kind of uh, the residents will deal with the floor issues and then staff will be will be involved kind of at, on an as-needed basis. They're quite receptive to being involved when they need to be, but 
We also have a good, we do have like a social worker for our floors as well as a charge nurse and they help with things like repatriation and home planning and occupational therapy helps with um, getting patient supports for home. So we don't have, by no means do we have to do everything. We have lots of good other supports, but we don't have a designated NP or PA for our program at any of the sites. So now switching gears a bit, are there any opportunities for elective rotations? Yeah, like we mentioned uh, earlier, you do get a few options to pick selectives in your first year. We're also integrating more availability of doing community rotations. So it was an option prior. And then I think logistically it skipped a year. Dr. Garland, I think, was included in that. But um, especially with CBD, they're wanting to demonstrate that you've had an exposure to, to community plastic surgery. So um, that's becoming part of our, our mandate in first and second year. And then in fourth year, we're also afforded elective time. Uh, so you get six weeks. When that actually is taken is a dictate a bit by coverage issues, but typically it's in the first six months of your fourth year. So that allows you to well, really go wherever you'd like, uh, including overseas like the United States or, or what have you. Um, Typically, residents will use that as an opportunity to scout fellowship programs or potential job prospects if they choose not to do a fellowship, even though the vast majority of of graduates across the country now do do a fellowship. But that sets you up to, one, see if you like the program, and then two, get some face time with those program directors for when you put in your application so they can put a face to the name when when you come come across their desk for fellowship applications, which happen in fourth year. So, so yeah, it's, it's certainly a nice um, opportunity to be able to do that. It, it's, I think, especially nice uh, for, for residents that are hoping to do fellowships in the United States, because otherwise they wouldn't, they wouldn't really know you from a hole in the ground, because it's not like you'll, you'll often see those people at the annual meeting that you would otherwise that a lot of residents travel to in Canada. So it sets, sets you up nicely for, for really any sort of fellowship application, but uh, particularly ones that are highly competitive and, and you may not be able to meet those people otherwise. And are there opportunities available for mission trips? I think historically people have used some of their elective time in fourth year to do that. I believe a few years ago there were there was a resident that did that. That being said, in recent years, I don't think many the residents just haven't had the same interest in that. I think that if the opportunities would be there if you sought them out. And I had considered looking into that as part of my fourth year electives. I think with COVID that's probably not going to be happening. But I think that the staff are very receptive to trying to make things work. So if a resident was very interested in that, I think that there would be opportunities for that to happen. Yeah, I'd agree. It has been a little while now, I think, since a resident has gone on a mission, and it would likely be during your fourth year elective time that you'd you'd take that opportunity. And what is the cosmetic experience like? Um, so our cosmetic experience, you kind of get it at different sites. So you get some when you're at the Victoria Hospital site, as well as at the St. Joseph's uh, site. It's not quite formalized in the sense that we don't do a resident cosmetic clinic or things like that, but we have the opportunity uh, to help with um, injections and see different cosmetic procedures. We have two 
kind of uh, private operating rooms in London and one's actually associated with the Victoria Hospital and right across the street. So there's a lot, oftentimes there's a staff almost, I would say three or four days a week operating at at least one of those two sites. I think we're transitioning towards trying to make it a little bit more formalized. I think that's that's something that we're working on and we're trying to work on having a resident clinic through one of our staff's uh, private clinics. So that's kind of in the works, hopefully being put into effect in the upcoming year. But at this point in time, we don't have something formalized. You just have to kind of, if you're interested in it, there's been lots of opportunities. You just have to kind of seek them out a little bit. For sure. Yeah. So with the introduction of CBD, they will have cosmetic EPAs that need to be completed. So that probably could be worked into our current infrastructure now, but there is going to be a formal resident cosmetic clinic at some point in the future to help address that opportunity to be able to to gain those EPAs. I think it, it was it was supposed to be implemented this past year, um, but with the pandemic that was put on hold just because patient recruitment and performing consultation for aesthetic cosmetic procedures is as you can imagine, highly unpredictable at the moment because a lot of those offices have been closed for a good portion of the year. So I, I honestly don't know when it'll be started, but hopefully once things return to a little bit more of normalcy, we'll see that up and running. So you'll be able to, to have kind of the lead on patients and doing procedures yourself as opposed to more of an assist role. But... Um, we also had a cosmetic uh, journal club that was started by one of our staff who has a fairly large cosmetic practice, uh, which I hope will continue on in the future, just sort of supplementing our regularly scheduled journal club. But yeah, to make a, a long answer short, it's a bit evolving how that will be delivered exactly. Yeah. Um, and what about the experience with gender affirmation surgery? So we do have two surgeons, although I'm sure our newest breast surgeon will also partake in doing top surgery. So that's been going on for a couple of years now. We do have experience with that when you're at University Hospital. And I think our program's starting to gain a reputation within the community of, of providing kind of comprehensive gender reaffirmation surgery. So it's it wasn't really... Uh, something that we were able to offer when I was a junior resident, but now I know I know at University Hospital there's probably multiple consults a week for it. I think there's there's always been talk of expanding that to other avenues and potentially collaborative work in doing quote unquote bottom surgery, but I don't think that's anywhere close to to fruition at this point. Maybe at some point in the future it will be, but. Um, but certainly from a top perspective, we do have uh, exposure to, to that. And are there any other perks about your program that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think, well, I think that there's lots of different things you could get into. I think that one of the great things about our program is our residency, like our resident group, that we're a little bit smaller of usually about 10, like we said, about 10 people. So that I think leads to people getting to know each other much better and on, and we all get along well and we see each other kind of both at work and socially outside of work. 
And one of the things that I think people really like, obviously right now it's a little bit on hold because of the pandemic, but usually for journal clubs, we all go out for dinner and we just spend, It's we're there for like three hours, we, we spend kind of 75% of it socializing, 25% of it discussing <laughs> journal articles. Um, but it makes for a really fun environment in terms of working with the residents, but also with the staff, because I find that we are a small program from a staff perspective as well. We don't have... We have, I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think it's around 12 staff. So you really get to know each and every one of the staff. And so they know you quite well. And I think that lends to um, mentorship and a, like feeling more comfortable with residents and letting them do more in the operating room because they know you well. And we do have a formal mentorship program as well that kind of starts at the end of your first year where you choose a mentor and they kind of, kind of, take you talk you through residency and if you ever have any issues every kind of mentorship relationship I think is different some people um, go out for coffee or for dinner or just have um, kind of meetings at their office I think it depends but the formalized mentorship I think is also nice but there's I don't know Jesse what else there's many things yeah no I I'd agree um so like like Katie point out we are uh, a relatively smaller program compared to some of the the other larger ones, but um, I agree with, we essentially have a one-to-one ratio of staff to residents, which is great. So we get a lot of independent clinical teaching. And we also get on our academic half days, formalized teaching from the staff themselves. So I know some programs, it's more of a resident, senior resident driven experience, but we do have the staff take time out of their schedule each week to provide us with formalized teaching. And so that's usually related to their subspecialty. So because we have people across the board, we have our uh, lower limb salvage surgeon teaching lower limb reconstruction. We have our hand surgeons teaching hand and peripheral nerve uh, and our breast surgeons teaching breast surgery, et cetera. So I find that very valuable. It's, it's great. You can, kind of review topics beforehand, get their expert opinion, and then bounce questions off of them and kind of get the most up-to-date and current knowledge that's applicable to your future practice. Um, so I, I've always found that really valuable, particularly when you're getting towards writing your your big exam at the end. I know the fifth and fourth years have always found that really valuable to kind of clarify what's what's in your notes. But yeah, Outside of that, we're we're I think we're known for being like a quote unquote scary program, although I'm not sure that that reputation still holds. I don't uh, think it does. <laughs> yeah, we um, we have a lot of new staff, which is great. They're open to trying new things and um, really kind of allowing you to to guide management as as you see fit with with their input, of course. So yeah, it's it's been great. It's there has been a lot of changes in our program, but um, I think all for all for the better. That's really good. And what about funding for things related to extra courses or or loops? As for extra courses, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not aware of any funding through our division specifically. There are lots of grants through the school and the Department of Surgery, so I'm I'm sure if you had something in mind, you could take it to. Uh, the administration and see if there's ways to to help get things funded. Katie um, alluded to a resident doing an MBA. To be honest, I, I'm not familiar with the funding that she was able to get, but I know that that was 
at least partially funded for her. And uh, as for loops, there's, there's no direct funding for that. Yeah, I think we get some funding or some, I think they, like, someone helps support us doing the, like, AO courses every year. I think they give funding for two residents or something. I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but I know that usually kind of, it goes down the, the chain of people and whoever, like, the fifth years get first crack at it if they haven't used it yet and then go down the list. And so some, oftentimes, correct me if I'm wrong, Jesse, there's, like, a hand and a craniofacial AO course and you usually have one of the two of those funded for you throughout your five years yeah that's right I think we have two spots per year that are funded that's sort of uh, like a supported through industry uh, an agreement that we have so thanks for reminding me there is that Um, if you're going to go to say like the Duke flap course I think they just kind of count that as um, going as if you were presenting research so that I believe that residents have used their academic funding for purposes like that as well. And what area of plastic surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in? Like I mentioned earlier, we're we're known pretty well as a hand program, and we probably do spend more time on rotations that focus on uh, hand and upper limb. So that's probably what a lot of our residents would say they're they feel strongest in, and we do have a lot of residents graduating with a strong interest in hand. But as we alluded to before, it's a pretty comprehensive program. We see really all aspects of of plastics. So I think we've had graduates across the spectrum, but yeah, I would say as any plastic surgeon who's doing a general practice would see majority hand and breast. That's a big part of our, our rotations, but, um, but as Katie is a great example, if you were interested in craniofacial or pediatrics, certainly those experiences are available to you. Yeah, I agree. I think our program's quite well-rounded, um, which is really nice. Um, and as someone who is interested in craniofacial and um, pediatric plastic surgery, I think that there's lots of great opportunities here. We have a a good uh, cleft lip and palate program in the city and I, we have um, someone who's very very well known in the field and has a lot of kind of mentorship and is surgically also very like quite good and so I think from a craniofacial side as well that the opportunities are there to learn um, as well. Now if I had to ask you to improve your program uh, could you please comment on that? That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> It's, I mean, there's always room for improvement. The nice part is the staff have been fairly receptive. In the past, I would say probably the biggest concern with residents would be just with the amount of volume that we would see, particularly on call, and then managing that in addition to your regularly scheduled clinical duties at times can be become difficult. Uh, I think there's probably been a a culture shift across the country to taking post-call more frequently without guilt, without feeling pressure to stay behind and, and simply cover for the sake of covering. I'm sure everyone could always do better from that perspective, but there's certainly been a shift from there. And like I mentioned, the formation of this urgent clinic has helped improve resident fatigue. Wherever you go, you're going to work hard, but that's something that we're always looking at. There's 
And I would say there's not a whole lot else that I would consider big glaring issues with our program, but it, it depends on kind of what your goals are and, and what you'd like to, to get out of your residency training. Everywhere you train is going to, is to make, to make you a competent plastic surgeon within Canada. Just other places will have, I guess, different priorities. If you go to maybe a larger city, better known for kind of wet work and benchside research, that's, that's not something that's as readily available, available at Western, even though it is something that we offer. So I guess, I guess it would depend really on, on what, who you are as a person and, and what your, your goals were and, what you want to get out of your residency training, but um, but I, there's no real big issues that I would I would point to. Yeah, I agree. And any little thing that kind of is brought up, I think, is really well received. And there's always like efforts made to try and make accommodations. So just like little things that the residents are like, I think we would be better if we did this. I think staff are very responsive to that. So overall, I don't think we really there's not anything big I would improve on either. I think it's a pretty good program. So on that topic, I'd like to transition a bit and hear a little bit more about the department leadership. So that's the the chair, the chief, and the program director. Sure. Um, So those positions have all changed uh, fairly recently. So our program director is Dr. Aaron Grant. He's a relatively newer staff. This is his eighth year of practice, I believe. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met, uh, sometimes to a fault, I'm sure. But he's an amazing program director. He's very approachable, and I think he advocates very strongly on behalf of residents. So I think he should have the job as long as he wants it. Uh, we um, we also have an assistant program director, uh, Dr. Tanya Delizer, also a breast-focused uh, surgeon, but at uh, Victoria Hospital. So she, I've I've have her personally as my mentor, and I found her also to be quite receptive. So I I don't really have anything else to add from that perspective. Um, our chair also switched recently from Dr. Ross, who had done it for a number of years, and I think is well known within the plastic surgery community, to Dr. Yazdani, who's a a younger staff at um, at Victoria Hospital, who I know has prioritized kind of collaboration with other services and research and and cosmetics especially. So that's it. he's just transitioned to that role. So it's early days, but uh, I'd say so far things have been headed in a, in a fairly good direction. We've had good, great new hires that have really added a, a lot to our program. But uh, I'm not sure if Katie would add anything else. No, I don't think so. I think across the board from a leadership perspective, uh, we have a lot of great people that are really good for advocating for the program, for the residents, for the staff. And so overall, I think we, from a leadership perspective, are doing, we have a, a really good leadership group. I guess the other person we could add, I don't know if other schools have this, but we also have a wellness um, director or representative. And so that's uh, Dr. Andrew Simpson. And he is kind of responsible for we organize like resident wellness events once or twice a year and then just kind of checking in on residents, addressing any issues from a, I feel like it's more from like a a work burden or kind of outside of work perspective. He's the one to go to for that type of thing. And so he's also great at advocating for the residents and kind of checking in and making sure, especially during the pandemic, it's been (laughs) 
Um, we've had one of our IMGs come during the pandemic. So I'm sure for him, he was a really big source of support. So that's kind of a role that I'm not sure if every school has, but we have that. And I think it's also a a really important uh, leadership role from that perspective. So could you tell me about a time when you or another resident brought up an issue with the program leadership and how they responded? Yeah, I think Jesse, you obviously, I'm sure you have one too, but you kind of alluded to this before where in my year, just based on um, the way that rotations were changing, um, unfortunately, we didn't get to do a community rotation in our first year, which is oftentimes included. And that was something that uh, myself and my co-resident were both really interested in. And so we have kind of manage to, um, with the help of the staff, kind of work things out and try and incorporate a community rotation in for us, which is really important for us. Um, And so that's kind of upcoming in this year. So that was something that we both really wanted and Dr. Grant and the rest of the staff were really receptive to trying to make work for us. And so I think for me, at least, that was a perfect example of something where I think Stacey and I both wanted um, one of this experience and the staff are really good at advocating and getting and trying to set that up for us. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. It's, we do have a resident teaching committee uh, that meets pretty regularly to address any concerns. So whether that be issues with craniofacial that we felt we weren't getting the referral volume we once saw, we addressed that by approaching the eMERGE leadership and, and ensuring that that was something that we're still being involved in and and seeing frequently. The urgent clinic that I've brought up a few times now is, again, another reason to help address resident fatigue and make sure things run a bit more smoothly and that we have the the space and the resources to do those uh, procedures that come in overnight. So yeah, there's lots of little things I think that get addressed just on a regular basis, kind of makeup of the trays and emerge that we thought weren't optimal things of that nature have all been dealt with pretty easily through through our resident teaching committee. And what kind of role do residents play in department decision making? So that could be whether related to choosing new faculty or choosing new residents. So with choosing faculty, I, of course, I think resident input is welcome, but that's primarily a decision that's made at the staff level. Like, the residents are kind of kept abreast, but you have to think if you're hiring new staff, hopefully they're here for potentially decades, whereas the residents, of course, will be here for for five years, give or take. So those decisions are made at a division level and then obviously a department level. As for selecting new residents, that's highly dependent on the residents. We're the ones who spend the most time with medical students typically. And we always have at least two residents on our selection committee each year. And all residents can give input. It's primarily the senior residents who have the strongest say. One, because they know what to look for in a good candidate and what would make a good surgical resident. But yeah, I would say the selection of, of candidates is is driven in large part from from the residents. And now I'd like to hear a little bit more about the logistics of how residents live. Do most residents own or rent? I feel like it's 50-50. I think half of, maybe a little less than half of our residents own and half of our residents rent. Yeah, I'd agree. Housing in London is quite, like, relatively quite affordable. So I I agree. I think 
I think you are right. It's about half of our residents that, that own a home. Typically, especially residents if they're coming from out of town, will rent initially and then transition to purchasing a home. But there's lots of lots of housing options available in London. And also it just comes down to personal personal preference. I prefer to live in a condo, so that's where where I'm at. But lots of our residents are in homes, like single detached sort of houses. And what's the commute like from where most residents live to the different sites? Is it necessary to have a car? Yeah, for sure. I would say in London, you need a car, especially when you're covering citywide call. It's just not really feasible to not have a car. That being said, you if you live downtown, you kind of live maximum 15 minutes from all of the hospitals. From Joe's, you're literally five minutes. Both Jesse and I live downtown. We're five minutes from Joe's. I'd say we live in like essentially the same apartment building. 10 minutes from Vic, 15 minutes from UH. Even if you live at the north end of the city, it's probably a 20, 25 minute drive to Vic, uh, which would be your farthest drive. So you're not commuting usually more than 20 minutes, I would say. And especially in the mornings, um, the traffic isn't really an issue. So overall, the commute in London is like quite, quite easy. Are you ever in a situation where you have to go to multiple sites in one day or within one rotation? Or is it generally just one rotation, one site? So on call, you may be going to different sites uh, overnight. And that's just sometimes how how it goes. During a rotation, this is changed for sure with the pandemic. So it used to be that if a uh, surgeon was quote-unquote based at Victoria Hospital, residents from that site would follow them when operating at different sites. That has gone by the wayside with the pandemic. I'm not sure if it will return. Like for instance, the surgeons at University Hospital will often operate at St. Joseph's Hospital. And so Historically, we had the university residents come with that staff member to operate. I think that is the intention of how things will be in the future, because then you're sticking with the staff of that rotation. You're getting the focus of what that staff does, and you're getting kind of a longitudinal relationship with them, a building comfort, etc. So you, you may be expected to go to different sites, but... For the most part, you stay at the site that you are assigned to. And what is the breakdown of residence in terms of people being single, married, or having kids? I don't think any of our residents right now have kids. Actually, I know they don't. I don't think they do. I know they don't have kids. Uh, Previously, I think in the past few years, we've had residents who've had kids during residency, but currently no one does. And then our residents are, some of them are married, some of them are single. It's kind of a mix, but none of them have kids. Not that we wouldn't welcome them, but that's just what it is currently. Uh, A recent graduate had children, but um, but yeah, none currently. And what do you guys like about living in London? Yeah. Um, so I hadn't been to London, like I'd been to London on elective, but otherwise had never really lived here. I think London is like a very secretly underrated city. I think that there's tons of breweries here that are actually quite awesome. Um, the restaurant scene here is pretty good. And in terms of outdoor space, there's like the river, there's lots of places to run outside and kind of spend outdoor time. And then the one nice thing about London is can't really appreciate it during the pandemic as much, but you're really in close proximity to a lot of different spots. So whether it's Detroit or Chicago in the States or up in Tobermory isn't very far and then has diving and hiking. 
So you have, and even within London itself, like you're 30 minutes from the beach kind of on either side, whether you go north or south. Um, so that's super easy for day trips. There's there's lots of stuff to do in London. So I actually, as someone who's from kind of a big city person, I would say, uh, I think London has lots of stuff to do. And I, it's actually quite a fun city when you're, when you're not at work. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. I've, uh, so I'm kind of the opposite of Katie. I've lived here for a number of years since I did my undergraduate in medicine here. I mean, my perspective as a person was a bit different at each points of those stages of my life. So you get out of the city a bit different at my age than you probably would as an undergraduate. <laughs> but um, there are lots to offer. Culturally, there's a theater here that I've gone to a few times. We have a fairly large arena uh, with an OHL team and we get kind of musical acts and other things of that nature that's pretty much right across the street from Katie and I. And then like she alluded to, there's fairly large cities that are close by. So Detroit is a little under two hours. Toronto's about two hours from here if you want to go and see sort of things that, that don't regularly come through London. But but I'd agree with Katie's sentiment that it's a great city if, if you like being outdoors. So the trail system, even within the city, is pretty extensive. Uh, and then nearby, there's several provincial and federal parks. So if that's something you're interested in, then London's certainly a great city for that. Awesome. So that's most of what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, are there any final thoughts that either of you have about your program or about the process of choosing a residency? I think we've covered a lot in the last uh, 70 minutes or so. I would just say that if anyone had any questions that we didn't address, feel free to reach out to Dr. Garland or myself or the program director. All of our, all of our contact is readily available on the plastic surgery website for our program. But no, I think, I think we've really covered covered a lot of it. I don't know, Katie, if you have anything else you'd like to add? Not really. I think we've covered most of the things. I think kind of what I want people to get out of this is that I think that London, the London Plastic Surgery Program, we're quite lucky. It's it's a smaller program. And it honestly, it's, it's like our family. Like the plastics program is my family in London. Um, we see each other outside of work. We see each other at work. Um, so overall, I think that we have a really great group and we're really, really lucky. And to end, I'd like to leave a question for our listeners. So could you guys ask our listeners your favorite plastic surgery related pimping question? I, you know, it's kind of cliche, but I would ask like why they want to be a surgeon and specifically a plastic surgeon. I think kind of the, uh, the cliche answer, the, the answer that I get a lot of times is that kind of you get to do and see like such a huge variety. And I agree that a great part of, of being a plastic surgeon, but um, I don't know, even within medicine, I find the perceptions of, of what plastic surgery is, is a little bit different than the reality. Uh, so I would encourage them to kind of really ask themselves what it is that draws them to plastic surgery and, and get as much exposure as they can before they make that firm commitment. I know everyone thinks that they have to be gunning for plastics from like day one of medical school, but that's not the case. I would, I would encourage people to kind of figure out why, why they want to become a surgeon, why plastics, uh, and make sure that that's the right choice for them. And that it's never too late to, to open up to, to new possibilities, including coming into plastics. 
I'm going to go with Jesse's thing and also not pick a pimping question. We have to save those. We have to save those so that we know. Um, But something actually as a fourth year med student, I was kind of asked was kind of who the father of plastic surgery is and kind of what the history of plastic surgery is. And uh, I won't give anything away, but there's actually kind of some books about this and it's a quite a very, quite an interesting story behind it all. And so I encourage anyone who's interested in plastic surgery or just the history of surgery in general to, to just kind of take a look and see what you find because it's quite interesting. All right. So thank you so much for speaking with me, uh, Katie and Jesse. I really hope the listeners have gained something valuable from this interview. And uh, thank you again. Our pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Shisha, for putting this all together. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Canada Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast platform and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions and suggestions. At this point, I'd like to give credit to Jenna Stair for founding Doctority and making all of this possible. Anyways, thanks again for listening. See you all next time.